0: Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Sernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging.
1: Welcome to uh, today's special episode uh, on From the View Box. Um, things are a little bit different today. Uh, it's uh, late April uh, 2020, and we're working through... Uh, the uh, pandemic. Um, we've got some uh, interesting uh, content uh, from one of our thoracic uh, radiologists that uh, Dr. Lowe will be interviewing. Um, this interview comes via a Zoom interview, so the audio may sound a little bit different, um, and our format's going to be slightly different. How I don't know if you want to just kind of briefly talk about the the format and and, and why we're we're having this uh, special episode.
0: Yeah, Chris. Um... And I hope uh, you, as well as uh, our our audience, are all uh, safe and healthy at home uh, as we all um, kind of uh, adapt to a new normal and live through this global pandemic uh, of the last few months here. Um, Yeah, we thought that uh, um, we would do a special episode uh, dedicated to COVID-19, given the uh, the worldwide crisis and the part that we play in radiology. Um, th- this episode may be a little bit longer than our typical episode and of slightly higher acuity, of course, um, so things are uh, fast moving and uh, the science is changing day by day, but we thought that it was important to have our audience um, hear from us and uh, at least uh Kind of uh, distribute and disseminate the the information that we know thus far about COVID nineteen. Uh, hope that uh, you enjoy this episode and that uh, you're uh, able to um, stay healthy and and uh, safe at home. That's great, Hal.
1: I hope uh, those that are listening to this podcast real time um, can get something out of this content. Um, I think the information is very timely, and although it goes away from our usual evergreen content. I think it was important given the unique uh, times that we're living in. And um, and I hope uh, your family is doing well as, as well as, as all those uh, listeners out there. So uh,
0: without further ado, our interview. Today, uh, we have a special episode of From the View Box, um, dedicated to the Uh, worldwide pandemic of novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And with us today, we have a special uh, guest, Dr. Maria Burrill, who is a faculty in our um, Cardiothoracic Division of uh, UMass Radiology. Uh, Dr. Burrill is our local expert on all things COVID-19, Maria. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining Chris and I today.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Um, Just uh, to give everybody sort of a starting point, um, today is April 20. We are recording via Zoom, uh, of course, uh, in the midst of this uh, worldwide uh, COVID-19 pandemic. In Massachusetts, we are in the... uh, sort of the peak phase of our local pandemic. Um, And uh, so today we will be talking about um, the diagnosis and imaging features of COVID-19 infection. Um, First off, Maria, um, can you please tell us about the, uh, the epidemiology and sort of the pathophysiology features of COVID-19 infection?
2: Sure. Um, Yeah, let's start with a little bit of background here. Um, COVID-19 is uh, a coronavirus that has been named SARS-CoV-2. It's one of many coronaviruses. including others such as the common colds and other pandemics like SARS. It started as a cluster of cases in Wuhan, China in December of 2019, but then it started to rapidly spread and the WHO declared COVID-19 a public health emergency in late January of 2020, and then characterized it as a pandemic in March of 2020. And so in that very short time period, we've learned quite a bit about the transmission and infectivity of the disease. We know that it's predominantly spread through respiratory droplets, through something you know, like sneezing or coughing, um, and also through contaminated surfaces because the virus will live on surfaces for uh, several days at least. Um, and then there is some thought that it possibly is spread through aerosol transmission in certain circumstances uh, where these virus particles are suspended in the air and can travel during um, various procedures, like respiratory procedures, such as BALs, and even in common everyday life if someone is yelling or singing. Um, but the main uh, modes of transmission are the respiratory droplets and surface contamination.
0: Great, uh, thank you, Maria, that's, that's excellent. Um, and some, I think some of those things we have sort of heard from the lay press uh, in terms of um, the, um, the cause of the disease, Uh, the type and the early history of this pandemic. Um, What about um, uh, infectiousness or infectivity? Uh, How infectious is uh, this particular virus? Mm -hmm. Um, Who gets it? Uh, How is it transmitted? Uh, And um, how virulent is it?
2: So good question. Um, We do know some of these things. The infectivity occurs about one to three days prior to symptom onset. And it's important to remember that there are estimates that up to 40 to 50% of transmission um, in the Wuhan area was attributed to asymptomatic patients, which is pretty important because it means that even in our everyday life, we could be walking around doing our normal activities, but potentially people could be asymptomatic but transmitting the virus. And we ourselves could be asymptomatic and transmitting the virus. So I think that is very important and that's part of why this virus is so scary for everyone because you don't know who is infected. There was a study done uh, by MGH in Chelsea which demonstrated uh, 30% of the patients that were screened uh, being positive for COVID-19. And these patients had no known infection but did report at least one symptom of of the disease in the past week. So that's pretty striking that 30% of those patients uh, were positive at that point in time. Um, and we also know that symptoms tend to occur three to you know you know anywhere from one to four days after the infection starts, but it can be up to eleven days. So there's quite a spread here. Um, and then we also have documented um, from experiences in other countries that the disease course, uh, while it starts you know with symptoms, about at day five to eight following symptoms, um, patients sometimes will develop significant shortness of breath. And this is important because they've shown that, that when patients really start to decompensate, it happens a day or two after this dyspnea starts. And that's when patients really go into respiratory distress. So I think that's something to keep in mind, You know, if you do happen to contract the virus, um, to know that these symptoms will potentially get much worse all of a sudden after about the week um, mark
0: okay great um, yeah that's that's great to know about the sort of the natural history of uh, the, the disease process, and I think I think we uh, have been learning about that as the pending pandemic um, uh, rolls on. Um, what about from the uh, sort of uh, clinical perspective and from the radiologic uh, perspective um, who are the Populations at most risk, and who, which patients should be most concerned about contracting COVID nineteen?
2: So, again, another good question. And we know from what happened in Italy and um, China that there are very specific risk factors um, for complications of COVID nineteen, and they include um, people that are over the age of sixty five. That's probably the mo- one of the most important risk factors. And then, you know, a, a variety of other. Um, disease states that are very common in our population, including cardiovascular diseases, chronic lung diseases like emphysema and COPD, hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And we see this every day um, in the United States. So these are these are entities that will really increase the complications of COVID-19. And there are other presumed uh, factors that will increase the risk of uh, complications of the disease. And these... Um, Are thought to be including kidney disease, any sort of immunosuppression, including um, a history of cancer or or cancer treatment, um, and also any type of organ transplantation. So pretty much patients that are taking any drugs that make them immunocompromised or have some sort of disease state where the immune system is not working as well. And I know from the cases that we've seen uh, here at UMass that many of these patients certainly are elderly and have a lot of these Uh, comorbid diseases, particularly um, cardiovascular and chronic lung disease like emphysema. However, there is a striking number of patients that are much younger than you would expect, you know, patients in their 20s, ranging up to 40s, who are also positive for the disease, and some of them are not doing well. But if you look into their charts, oftentimes these patients will have these other comorbidities such as renal or heart disease, I've seen very pretty commonly here at UMass, Um, history of malignancy, and I've also seen um, a couple of patients with a history of uh, drug abuse disorders, um, which is not something I've read about as being a predisposing factor, but I've, I've noted that um, these patients seem to be landing in our ICUs more frequently than you would expect, given just their age.
0: Great. Thank you very much. So it sounds like, uh, yes, we, uh, we are dealing mainly with a, a sicker and uh, uh, more elderly population Have contracted the disease, but uh, sounds like young and healthy patients can also get the disease as well. Um, Now, what? Moving on, what about um, our our current uh, armamentarium or tools for screening and diagnosing COVID-19 infection? And of course, specifically, what are the uh, what's the utility and what's the role of serologic tests, uh, PCR? Uh, and then we're radiologists, so of course I got to ask the question of what's what is the use and what's the utility of uh, plain radiography as well as uh, CT examination.
2: So this is an important point. Um, the diagnosis of COVID nineteen is made by detection of SARS CoV two RNA by uh, PCR technique. So when we're talking about screening and diagnosis. Um, Imaging really doesn't play a a role according to the major societies such as the um, ACR and and also the CDC. Really, the diagnosis and screening should be done by this PCR test um, on nasopharyngeal swabs or pharyngeal swabs. Um, These PCR tests look for parts of the virus genome. And there are many different assays out there. But studies have shown that the overall uh, sensitivity of the PCR is shockingly only 60 to 70% sensitive for the disease. And what that basically means is that there are a lot of false negatives out there. Um, And the false negatives are not because the test doesn't necessarily detect the virus. There are a whole host of reasons why why, um, a patient could have a false negative test. It's determined by things like um, the specific assay in question, the type of specimen obtained, the quality of the specimen, I think, plays a big part of it, and also the the time point in the duration of the illness that you're testing with early testing, um, sometimes giving more false positives, false negatives um, than testing at a later date. So all of these factors play into um, how sensitive the test is going to be. So I know at UMass and probably at other m- big me- medical centers, um, when we have patients where there is some clinical concern for the disease, and but they have a, a negative uh, PCR test for COVID, we will test them multiple times. Um, and oftentimes, I've seen this I'd say a number of times where we'll have imaging that suggests it or clinically, it, it's it's just the symptoms are highly suggestive of COVID-19. And on the second uh, or third test, it will come back positive. So I think um, it's important for residents to remember the fact that these tests are not 100% accurate. And that if you really do have some concerning imaging findings, um, you need to have a discussion with the clinician to, to uh, talk about, about this and remember that there's only really a, practically speaking, a 60 to 70% sensitivity of the test. There are some serologic tests uh, that are out there that look for antibodies, but um, and these are being developed. uh, There are some issues with them. Um, We have to remember that it does take the body some time to produce antibodies to a virus. So um, symptom- um, onset to antibody detection. in one study was, you know, 12 to 14 days, depending on the antibody that they were using. So it's not something that, um, is, is as hopeful as maybe we would like it to be. Um, and then there are also issues related to cross reactivity with other coronaviruses because they are pretty common viruses. Even the common, common colds can be caused by coronaviruses. So we have to think about that. Um, so the mainstay of testing has really been PCR, uh, testing using nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swabs.
0: Okay, uh, great. Um, What about the role of imaging in the diagnosis and screening of these patients? Uh, What about radiography and see how are we supposed to use those modalities?
2: So that is a great question. And very early on, um, when the disease was hitting the US, there was a lot of discussion about this topic, how to use imaging um, in this setting. And the bottom line is that both the CDC and ACR do not currently recommend CT or chest X-ray to diagnose COVID-19. Viral PCR testing remains the only specific method for diagnosis. Um, And even if the radiologic findings are suggestive of COVID-19 on either chest X-ray or CT, confirmation with the viral test is required for diagnosis. Um, And it's important to remember that A patient um, can have a normal chest CT, and it does not mean that the patient does not have COVID-19. So we have to remember that these imaging findings could occur later on in the disease process. So we we can't use CT to exclude uh, COVID-19. And also on the other side of the spectrum, um, if there are findings that look consistent with COVID-19, we cannot always assume that it's COVID-19 I've seen here at UMass, particularly early on um, in this pandemic, where we were positive we had a case of COVID-19, and after multiple tests, the patients were negative, and it ended up, um, the abnormalities were ended up being attributed either to other viruses, but there are also other entities um, such as drug toxicity or um, parenchymal findings in patients with connective tissue disease that can have a similar appearance, So, so... the bottom line is that imaging um, is an adjunct um, in the workup of these patients and it and has specific utility in looking for superimposed bacterial infections or following the disease progression, but it is not recommended to be used for diagnosis.
0: Great. That's, that's, that's great to know. Um, now, what about um, for our trainees and practicing radiologists or uh, just, for radiologists who maybe have not seen uh, many of these cases already, what are the uh, most salient or the most important uh, sort of imaging features of COVID-19 infection uh, on radiography as well as on CT?
2: So, um, interestingly enough, uh, this coronavirus has uh, has a, a signature appearance um, on imaging. It's it's not specific to COVID nineteen, but it is specific enough that you know when we see it, we can have we can you know suggest that potentially um, the patient's symptoms are attributed to COVID nineteen. And the the specific appearance that we're looking for. Um, is ground glass opacity, consolidation, or crazy paving appearance with a subplural and bilateral distribution. And that's really the key distribution in this this setting. We want to look for parenchymal abnormalities that are located in the subplural portions of the lungs. Early on in the disease, the abnormalities are usually ground glass in appearance. But as the disease progresses, the abnormalities will become more consolidative in appearance and another uh, very specific finding that we've seen, not specific, but a very notable finding that we've seen is the reverse halo appearance um, in this entity where what we mean by that is we have this peripheral consolidation and central ground glass. And we have, uh, we have seen this sort of pattern in other disease states, and we call it this organizing pneumonia type of pattern, um, where you have consolidations in the subpleural aspects of the lung, and then you also have these reverse halo opacities. Um, and I think the reason it has this appearance is because when the virus is infecting the lung parenchyma, there is a reaction, the body is mounting a reaction, and it's an organizing pneumonia type of reaction to the virus, uh, which is why it has this pattern. Um, I think it's also important to note that most commonly the abnormalities are in the lower lobes, but I would certainly not um, eliminate COVID-19 in the different- from the differential if it was just an upper lobe predominant process, because I've seen it um, most commonly in the lower lobes, but I've also seen it present initially in the upper lobes. Um, but the important thing to remember for the residents is subplural, ground or consolidation, and multifocal location. So if you have uh, just one lung involved, it's much less likely to be COVID. And the other important thing is that um, looking through all the cases from Italy and China, you know that um, cavitation, pleural effusions, and adenopathy is very atypical for COVID. So if you see these things, it's less likely to be COVID-related pneumonia. So that's kind of important. Um, I will there one caveat to that being is that at least in the United States, and this did not come out earlier on, um, we are noting that this virus is affecting the heart to some extent, whether it's a direct infection and a, a, a myocarditis type of thing. Um, or a thrombotic complication, and patients are having MIs, there are many cardiac uh, manifestations of this disease. And in those situations, you can have heart failure um, from the COVID-19. In that situation, you could potentially get pleural effusion. So you kind of have to remember that and where the patient is in the disease course, because the cardiac manifestations tend to happen later.
0: Great. Uh, Great, that sounds good, uh, uh, Maria. Um, And and for our audience, uh, please note that uh, Dr. Burrell has graciously given us uh, quite a few uh, references um, from the recent literature uh, in terms of consensus statements and imaging features, diagnostic implications of COVID nineteen. Those will be in our show notes as always. Um, So so Maria. now that say we have a case that we think uh, could be compatible with uh, COVID-19 infection, how do we report those findings uh, in the radiology report and how do we convey our confidence level of the uh, diagnostic findings that we see?
2: So this is a question we had very early on in the disease in the US and um, thankfully uh, the RSNA convened an expert panel and uh, published this their findings in radiology. And they, they basically broke down findings into four categories, which they uh, termed typical, indeterminate, atypical, and negative for pneumonia. And so there is an actual uh, guideline for us to follow, um, depending on the distribution of the findings. So, for instance, if we have very typical findings where patient... Um, gets a CT and there are uh, peripheral bilateral ground glass opacities, potentially there could be some consolidation there or crazy paving, Um, or if we see that reverse halo finding, and, you know, this is looking pretty suspicious for COVID-19, they have actually given us exact language that we can use in our report. So we would um, document the distribution of the findings and then they suggest that we say something along the lines of um, commonly reported imaging features of pneumonia are present, However, other processes such as influenza pneumonia and organizing pneumonia, as can be seen in drug toxicity or connective tissue diseases, can have a similar imaging pattern. So basically what we're doing is we're saying, hey, this pattern looks really suspicious for COVID-19, but they still have to clinically correlate because... If the patient, for instance, is an oncology patient and is on uh, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, which you know typically will give you these sorts of pneumonitis and organizing pneumonia patterns of drug toxicity, it's very possible that these findings could be attributed to that. So they're giving us guidelines, but at the end of the day, um, the clinicians have to clinically correlate. So if it's a patient who has no other... F- Reason to have an organizing pneumonia pattern in their lungs, then it's probably COVID nineteen. Um, but they do have to go through that thought process of trying to decide um, if this is clinically relevant or not. And then for the other categories, the indeterminate category, um, the abnormalities um, in this category are described as sort of multifocal, diffuse, perihilar, or unilateral uh, ground glass or consolidation. So. There are some features of COVID, but it's not in your typical distribution. Um, and so, in that setting, they suggest that we say um, something to the effect of imaging features can be seen with pneumonia, um, though are nonspecific and can occur with a variety of, of infectious and non infectious processes. So, it's possible this is COVID 19, but there are a wide range of uh, potentially infectious even possibilities that could account for these findings. So um, I would recommend that the residents take a look at this um, proposed reporting language for uh, CT and chest x-ray um, that was published in Radiology because it's very it's very helpful in, in that decision-making process. You can make the findings, but then sort of how you um, sum it up, and y- your recommendations will change depending on the distribution. And they've done a really nice job of kind of making these four categories uh, for us to refer to.
0: Excellent. Uh, and I know that in emergency radiology, we we currently are trying to integrate, trying to um, use those uh, consensus that you, consensus the terminology from RSNA ACR as much as possible in report in uh, our reporting of chest CTs. Um so what about the uh, so what about in the in cases where there is a COVID suspicious uh examination? What um when should the reporting radiologist make a direct uh, contact with the clinician uh in regards to the imaging findings?
2: Um so yeah, that's a great question, again, that we also had early in the course of this uh disease process. And um in general. If the patient is not under respiratory precautions and there are concerning imaging findings on CT, um, the abnormality should definitely be discussed with the covering clinician. And in addition, a note should be sent to the ID COVID team through EPIC um, in our system. And this is just because we have to think about who this patient potentially um, is exposing. Um, but the we can't just call it COVID, as I said, because there are other disease states that can have a similar imaging appearance. Um, and that's why we need to talk with the clinicians directly so that we can kind of bounce ideas off of each other, see what their clinical uh, suspicion is. And also, you know, if, you know, depending on whether or not they're being tested or not, not tested. Um, but if the patient is not under respiratory precautions, they absolutely, uh, it absolutely needs, uh, a, you know, Phone to phone conversation with the clinician, and I would re- also recommend that probably it should happen at the attending level. Um, I, I had a couple of conversations with um, some interns who, you know, who you know were, were trying to do their 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 due diligence. But I think these um, these sorts of conversations, particularly if the patient is not under respiratory uh, precautions, in, in in those settings, it might be helpful to talk with the attending um, on service. Um, And then, if the result of that conversation after your discussion is that, wow, you know, this patient really could potentially have COVID-19, obviously the clinicians are going to put the patient under precautions until they're tested and ruled in or out, but then the resident should really call the technicians, our radiology technicians, and tell them about the results of the discussion because that will change what they're doing and how they clean the room. And it just has effects on their own personal safety. So we can't forget to call our techs if it has been determined that um, in fact, this this could be COVID-19 and for whatever reason, um, the the clinicians on the floor hadn't thought about it. And what I've noted is that this was more of an issue early on um, when it was hitting the US uh, not, pa- patients were not being tested very um, readily. And now that it seems, at least at UMass, we do have a, a good number of tests that by the time they get to imaging and I'm looking at the CT, they've already thought about COVID. They've already uh, tested them. Maybe the test has come back ne- negative. So we have much more information currently when we're interpreting these studies than we initially did. Um, but it, that may be different in the ED. When they haven't had time to run the test. so if you see something suspicious, bottom line, just call the uh, clinician and have a discussion about it. But don't forget to tell the text.
0: Absolutely, and and I would uh, echo those sentiments, especially for the uh, in in the emergency department setting. That uh, it tends to be that in that setting, uh, with the acute presentation of disease, it tends to be sort of less communications at times, and so it's it's even more important that. Radiology technologists, radiologists, and um, treating physicians, clinicians are on the same page uh, in the same boat, um, so to speak. Um, And I will also say, as with uh, many cases in, in radiology, generally speaking, every hospital and every medical center is going to operate somewhat differently. So depending on which hospital and which medical center you're in... Um, you know, care of these COVID patients may be more centralized or decentralized. For instance, I know at UMass that uh, the infectious disease uh, division of internal medicine is very involved with novel cases and especially unsuspected cases and case tracing, all that kind of thing. So they they have a pager. They ha- they have a we have a pretty robust setup for notifying clinicians uh, of of sort of unsuspected COVID cases. Um, now. What about this uh, idea of severe or malignant progression of COVID-19 infection? Um, How often does that occur? When does that occur? And then um, I know uh, one hot topic right now is can we predict, uh, based on initial imaging of COVID patients, which of those patients will progress to a more severe phase of the disease?
2: So that's a really good question. It would be great. If we would be able to predict the course of disease from their initial imaging, I think there are some difficulties in approaching that, you know, having to do with when the patients present. Um, We're noting that some patients are presenting a little bit later because they don't want to come to the hospitals um, because they're afraid of catching COVID. Um, Other patients might come more readily. So we're going to catch these patients at different points in the image in, in the disease process. So there's some issues related to that. Um, however, there have been studies, uh, correlating the clinical disease severity with the extent of parenchymal opacities on the CT and they've, they've established cutoffs. Um, if you, if you do the scoring mechanism that they proposed where, uh, beyond this cutoff patients are tend to be in the critical category where they're going to the ICUs and being intubated. So that kind of research is, has already begun and there are already studies looking at, um, clinical severity and extent of parenchymal opacities on CT. Um, And we know just, uh, we have a lot of data from China and Italy. It's not exactly the same as as what we're seeing in the U.S., but there there was one large study looking at over 2,000 COVID-positive patients in the U.S., um, and they reported hospitalization rates between 20 and 31 percent and ICU admission rates between five and 11 and a half percent, but the data is constantly evolving. Um, some of the earlier studies were smaller and the percentages were different, but you have to take into context. if Initially, um, the disease was spreading you know, in clusters, sometimes in nursing homes, where you're really just going to have an older patient population. So these larger studies are uh, very interesting to look at where there's more of a mixed uh, population of patients. Um, The clinical progression of the disease is also pretty well documented with, um, as I mentioned, studies showing that the onset of dyspnea occurs around five to eight uh, days following the symptom onset. Um, And and what I thought was particularly interesting is that although it takes uh, dyspnea, you know, approximately a week to set in ARDS and respiratory failure occur quite quickly after that a median of two and a half days later. So um, that's a pretty uh, striking progression, and we should keep that in mind. Um, we also know that other uh, common complications of COVID nineteen um, extend beyond the chest, and uh, not my area of expertise, but. Uh, If you read, there are a lot of articles in the New England Journal, um, and they're reporting acute kidney injury, elevated liver enzymes, and a variety of cardiac injury, as I previously mentioned, um, not just cardiomyopathy, but pericarditis, pericardial effusions, and arrhythmias, um, and also sudden cardiac death. And we've heard uh, stories from EMTs Uh, in the news where, you know, their whole day is filled with uh, calls for uh, cardiac arrest. And they ask, you know, the family members, was the patient sick beforehand? And and sure enough, they've all had fever and cough. And most of them, you know, have passed uh, during that episode. And it comes down to this viral infection causing cardiac issues. So it can present in a lot of different ways. Um, I think Currently, what is evolving um, in our sort of knowledge base about this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic is that there are neurologic complications um, that we should be looking for, including encephalopathy and acute ischemic stroke, even in patients that are relatively young. Um, on the radiology side of things, there have been reports of leptomeningeal enhancement and acute necrotizing hemorrhagic encephalopathy. Um, So this disease is very complex, and it's not just uh, a respiratory disease. There have been GI complaints, cardiac, neurologic, and even thrombotic complications of COVID-19. So there's quite a bit for our residents to be looking out for in the ED, and um, I think it's important to be aware of, you know, this sort of base of knowledge that we have about COVID-19 and everything that we have um, compiled over the last few months.
0: Yeah, Maria, I think that's a, that's a great point, because I, I think um, as this pan- worldwide pandemic has progressed, uh, and with time, I think we're starting to learn, I hope you would agree, that this is not really just a, a pulmonary disease, it seems like, uh, because there certainly are many well-documented reports of, like you say, uh, neurologic, thrombotic complications. I know at UMass, we've seen plenty of... Uh, um, sort of hepatobiliary complications in terms of just hepatic dysfunction, which seems to be occurring a lot, just like the acute kidney disease as well. So um, I think there's going to be quite a bit more to come from uh, this COVID-19 infection and sort of all the pathophysiology uh, and pathologic sequelae uh, of infection. Um, What about uh, sort of recommendations on... um, follow-up imaging or use of imaging, Uh, Fleischner Society, I think, what what do they have to say about um, when to image, how to image, uh, maybe follow-up imaging?
2: Sure, yeah. So the the Fleischner Society uh, has um, put out some recommendations on when to image using CT or chest X-ray. There is very limited data on ultrasound, although it has been in the literature, but they don't really uh, touch upon ultrasound at all um their recommendations uh are really just for ct and chest x-ray and they basically have created um these flow charts uh with three different scenarios and the different scenarios uh vary according to uh severity of disease and the pretest possibility uh probability of covid-19 um generally speaking um They're saying that imaging is not indicated in patients with suspected COVID-19 and mild clinical features, unless they're at risk of uh, disease progression, meaning they have these comorbid um, abnormalities like heart disease, lung disease, that sort of thing um, that put them at higher risk. Um, But they do recommend imaging uh, for COVID um, patients uh, if they have worsening respiratory status. Um, and they also note that some in some instances, and sometimes many instances, resources are constrained, um, and imaging is indicated for medical triage of patients with suspected COVID19 who present with moderate, severe clinical features and a high pretest probability of the disease. Um, so I think the bottom line is if the patient does have severe symptoms, according to these flow charts, they're recommending imaging either by chest x-ray or CT. Um, if the patients are positive, they're imaging to establish a a pulmonary baseline of sorts. Um, And they also want to know what their underlying cardiopulmonary abnormalities may be, because that can facilitate risk stratification for clinical worsening. For instance, if there's emphysema or fibrosis, or sometimes, you know, we will randomly see extensive air trapping, that could put a patient at higher risk for progression. And then in the setting of patients that are negative are yet to be tested, but they still have severe respiratory symptoms, you know, you really want to look for an alternative diagnosis. So it's sort of your typical use of CT. Um, so it really depends on how severe the patient's symptoms are and also what your pretest probability for the disease is. Um, and they also mentioned that they don't really tell us whether to use chest x-ray or chest CT, they sort of state up front that that decision is, uh, should be based on a number of different factors. Um, It's important to remember that chest x-ray is relatively insensitive for COVID-19 changes early on. But as the disease progresses, it becomes much more sensitive later in the disease course. Um, But, you know, if patients are coming with, with significant symptoms, it it could give you an alternative diagnosis. So say they they have fever and shortness of breath, but then they have a low bar consolidation in the right lower lobe. That's not going to be you know COVID necessarily. That's just a, a low bar pneumonia. Um, it could be you know, or their symptoms could be attributed to an effusion or a pneumothorax, uh, something along those lines. Um, so you can use chest X ray to uh, you know look for alternative diagnoses. CT might be better for that, but You know, chest x ray could be helpful. And then chest x ray also is actually pretty good for looking at disease progression because you have portable x ray units and the patients don't have to move, therefore, limiting transmission of the disease through the hospital. Um, But I do think uh, it is important to remember that uh, a negative x ray or CT does not mean the patient is negative for COVID. because the patients may not be manifesting parenchymal abnormalities at whatever you know point in their disease that they are, so um, so that's something we should definitely keep in mind.
1: Okay, uh, that that was a great discussion. How uh, Maria, I just wanted to, to thank everyone for your time. I know we're all kind of busy and locked up in our own uh, space uh, during this time. So um, so thank you, uh, Maria, for coming on from from the view box. Um, I know our trainees appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, I hope you had a good time on, on our uh, podcast. Um, any final thoughts or or comments?
2: Um, no, I just, uh, well, I want to say thank you for having me and to all the residents out there. Um, you know, this is a tough disease and I think you have, you have all the tools you need to, to go in and participate in this clinical decision-making, but it's, you know, it's not easy. And so good luck to you guys.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Maria. Stay safe. I uh, look forward to seeing you at uh, some point after we're all uh, back to some level of normal. Sounds good. All right. Take care. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at
0: www.umassmed.edu radiology. Thank you to our colleagues, Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.